we're going to pause here, and I, I was supposed to wake up Ted so that he would remind me to tell a story. Okay, yeah, yeah, I remember the story now. We got these, you know, it's, it's warm in here sometimes, and we get these fans going, and they're like oscillating, and Ted was telling me how I put him to sleep sometimes, and Karen has to elbow him, but no, it reminded me of a story, um, I'm going to totally embarrass here, uh, of my mom in college. And uh, she was in college uh, back in the, in the 70s, dating her here. And there was this young man who was likely working at McDonald's until late at night, the night prior or something. And he was, he was sound asleep in her college class. I don't know if the desk in front of you or behind you or whatever. So uh, she, you know, she probably observed him sleeping repeatedly in this college class. And he probably would have done that regardless of whether or not he worked at McDonald's the night prior. So she knew his name was David or Davy, Dave. And she, uh, she came up with this great idea. She's like, you know what I'm going to do? I don't know this guy, but he, I know he's, he's kind of a, a schlup. He's sleeping in all the classes. She, she nudges him and she goes, David, David, wake up. Dr. So-and-so said to turn the lights off. Turn the lights off. And so he, he jumps up in a panic and he r runs to the front of the room and just flips the switch off really fast and then, and then walks back to a seat in the middle of the professor standing there teaching. <laughs> and, and she's just like, <laughs> and he just sits down and they're all like, why did you just turn the lights off? You know, he just like jerks awake and then runs over into, and he's just like, what? And she's just snickering and laughing. And so that David is uh, who she spent 40 years in marriage to and is my father, right? So, uh, you think my mom does not have a mean streak? Think again. So if I see you sleeping, and I tell you to turn the lights off, don't do it. Or if someone else tells you to turn the lights off, don't do it. But I do need a volunteer to turn the front lights off if someone doesn't mind. Um, that would be great. And no, this is not a joke. <laughs> well, Adrian taught, he did a great job teaching on Acts 21 a couple weeks back. And after Acts 21, you know, we see Paul. He is uh, going up to Jerusalem. And he meets in Jerusalem. He's greeted by this group of people we now call the Jerusalem Council. And the, the leader of the Jerusalem Council was James. And James says, oh, Paul, it's good to see you. And Paul gives a good report. And then James says, hey, Paul, there's these rumors about you. Right? You guys remember this? And um, Paul said, oh, yeah, really? What are they? And he says, well, we've heard that you have been telling the Jews living among the Gentiles to apostatize from their faith, basically and to not keep the traditions of their faith, and to stop circumcising their sons, basically Hellenize and stop being a Jew. What will they say when they hear that you've come here? Now, this is a perfect opportunity for Paul to say, like, oh yeah, that's exactly what I've been teaching. I don't want, I want Jews to leave their faith. I don't want them to continue with circumcision. I don't want them to do all this stuff. I'm teaching that we are now under this, this thing called grace, and that that was... That's bondage, and now we're under this, and we have freedom to do all that. Perfect opportunity for Paul to say that, right? Does he do it? No. No. Paul says, okay, how do I put these to bed, right? How do I put these rumors to bed? And James says, look, here's what I need you to do. And no one will know that there is, everyone will know there is nothing to these rumors if you do this. I want you to go up to the temple, and there are four men who are there to complete a vow. And they're believers as well, presumably. And I want you to, with them, go in and finish this vow. Now, almost every, it's almost unanimous biblical scholars say this is the Nazarite vow mentioned in Numbers chapter 6. Numbers chapter 6. 
And it includes, uh, in this situation, it would have been Paul purchasing and, and basically employing the Levites to slaughter over a dozen animals. I think around 15 animals. And we talked about how for Paul to be able to do that, it would have cost anywhere between $8,500 to $10,000 in today's money for him to pull that off and to pay for that and to sponsor that. Perfect opportunity for Paul to say, like, you know what, actually, um, yeah, let me go ahead and get this out in the open. Those rumors are kind of true. But does he do that? No. Paul says, no, I, yeah. He, James says, if you do this, then they will know you are in alignment with the law. And you too teach the Torah. You too teach obedience to God's commands. So Paul, he does it. He goes up to the temple. He's like, yeah, I'm going to do this. So Paul is either fickle, he's a fake, or he's an observant Jew. <laughs> and he's never apostatized from that faith. And he even says, I'm a, I'm a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee. So he goes up there and, and he's, he's okay with bringing all these animals and, and the slaughter of these animals on the temple for the completion of the Nazarite vow. And wait a second, this is like 20 to 25 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of our master Yeshua. So you're telling me Paul, one of the leaders and apostles of Yeshua, is okay with this? I remember the first time I read that and I was like, wow, yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting. Because much of church theology and Christianity teaches that all that bloody stuff, all the, all the sacrificial stuff was immediately stopped and that was like cut off, the temple veil was torn in two, and you don't do that anymore. That was just like a picture and a shadow. But here we see like anywhere between 20 to 25 years later, Paul is doing that same thing. So he either didn't get the memo, or he's, he's falling into peer pressure, or that's just how he worships. And he's completely okay with that. I'm going to go with the last one. That Paul is steadfast in his faith, and that's how he worships. And so he's going to sponsor other people to do it. And we're like, wait a second, how does that fit into my theology and my understanding of the sacrifices, and especially this book in my, in my Bible called the book of Hebrews? Ah, and therein lies why I had you read the book of Hebrews from a good translation for the past two weeks. How many of you did it? Anybody do it? Oh, wow, that's awesome. A lot of you did it. Good. All right. And you were supposed to read Leviticus 16 prior to that. Good. I think a lot of you did it. And you're supposed to watch a 45-minute documentary, 45 minute documentary. So... After Adrian's teaching on Acts 21, probably four or five people came to me, and many more were probably thinking, wait a second, what about sacrifices? What do we do with sacrifices? And so I got to thinking, you know, maybe I should teach them. Maybe this is a good opportunity for me to teach, because there seems to be a disconnect, or there seems to be an, an opportunity, what we call a learning opportunity here, where I can shed some light on this. And I got to thinking about it, you know, that's a really big topic, and for me to talk about what about the sacrifices, for me to say, like, if the temple were rebuilt now, what would I do? No, I'm not going to do any of that. Here's what I will do, because this is a very, very big topic and a slightly nuanced topic. What I am going to do and what I feel safer doing is to try to answer this question with you today. What do the early followers of Yeshua believe or not believe, and why do they still continue to go to the temple to worship? That I can point to chapter and verse. Whereas, like, if the temple is built tomorrow, what would you do? I can't do that hypothetical stuff right now, okay? Do you think there was 100% consensus in the first century on, on where Gentiles and non-Gentiles, where Jews and non-Jews could go in the temple and what they should do as followers of Yeshua? No, probably not. And Gabe Rutledge, studying Hebrew for just a little while, been to Israel once, living in Dothan, Alabama. I can't speak Hebrew. I can read biblical Hebrew. 
Uh, that's probably at like a third or fourth grade level even. Um, I didn't grow up in the Jewish faith. I've never, I've been to the Temple Mount, but it wasn't there. The temple was not there. All right, I, I, I'm so disconnected from that culture in those times that for me to stand here and to be like, oh yeah, I've got 100% clarity and certainty on this, I'd be lying to you all. And I hope that you can extend that grace to me. But what I can do is point to chapter and verse and try my best to answer that question right there. You guys up for it? Think we can do it? Okay. I come up with some theories here. Well, maybe the early followers of Yeshua kept going to the temple and kept worshiping in the temple because Matthew 5, that's an easy one, right? I can just say, well, Matthew 5 says, Yeshua is saying, don't think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Yes, indeed. Until heaven and earth pass away, not so much as a jot or tittle by any means pass from the Torah, the law, until everything that must happen has happened. Therefore, whoever disobeys even the least of these commandments and teaches others who do the same, we've got least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys and so teaches will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So, right there, I mean, is our animal sacrifices in the law? Yeah. Absolutely. They actually comprise, if you look at the Levitical worship system and the sacrifices around that, they actually take up the bulk of the around 613 commandments that are in the Torah. The majority of the volume of the commandments are, are specified and, and oriented towards that mode of worship. So yeah, absolutely. I could use Matthew 5 and say, well, Yeshua said, continue to do it because it's part of the law and the temple's there. You should do it. But that's too easy. <laughs> what if I did this? Uh, here's another theory. They were under peer pressure. That these Jews were still, they still identified as Jews. And they were kind of like climbing up out of the primordial Jewish like sludge, you could say. All right? And they hadn't really evolved into like Christian man yet. And, and they needed the temple to be destroyed for them to sprout little legs and be able to walk like little Christian good Baptists. No. I don't believe that either. I don't believe that either. Or what if, what if this? They just didn't get the memo. Okay, Yeshua did away with all that. He abolished all that, but, but he just wasn't good at communicating all that. Even down to Paul. Like, he didn't tell Paul that. Does that make sense? I, I can't buy that either. Let, let's, let's flesh this out a little bit then. And in order to do so, we have to answer this question right here and grapple with this problem. Because one of the most unnatural things, actually, I would argue that the most unnatural thing we can all experience in this room is death especially death of another human being. And some of the most evil people in the world, it's like commensurate with their, their level of acceptance of death of innocent human beings. And where does all that come from? Well, Paul says in Romans 6 that death is the paycheck of sin. You do sin, it's death. Paul says the wages of sin are you die. And then he says, wait a second, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory? That means we all will what? Die. Die. Wow. Unless you're Bill Gates and you're going to project your consciousness into the metaverse or freeze your whatever. Which even then, he, I think he's going to die. All have sinned. Wait a second. We have to come to terms with that. Go with me to Genesis chapter 3. Because we have to figure out what sin is and how we avoid it, okay? Some of you in this room, you're like, oh, I know what sin is. Well, I don't know. How good are you at avoiding it? Go to Genesis 3. The first three chapters of the book of Genesis 
I believe, contains the gospel. The entire gospel story can be found in the book of Genesis. Genesis 3, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any wild animal which the Lord God had made. So he said to the woman, Did, did God really say you're not to eat from the tree in the garden? The woman answered the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You are neither to eat it nor to touch it, or you will die. That, that, see, you see the wages of sin there? It's disobedience, death. The serpent said to the woman, It is not true you will surely die. Because God knows that on the day that you eat from this, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil and having a good internet connection. I'm just kidding. It's not in there, but it probably would have been. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it had a pleasing appearance, I mean, it's the eyes, the eyes, lusting after the eyes, and that the tree was desirable for making one wise, just like the internet, she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together to make themselves loincloths. Okay? It's important because the, the Hebrew word for fig there is te'ina. Can you guys say te'ina? Good, you got it. The Hebrew word for excuses is to'ana. To'ana. It's one letter off. They're connected linguistically in their root, their three-letter root. Te'ena, to'ana. So it's like they clothe themselves connected to the idea of excuses. And picture this. This is what we do. This is what we do. Then they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the breezes. So the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of of the Lord God among the trees in the garden and God the Lord God called them called to the man where are you they're being shameful now okay because they hear his voice they've sinned they've clothed themselves in excuses they hear God's voice they experience shame and he answered them I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid myself and he said who told you you were naked have you eaten the tree from which I told you not to eat Remember, the first sin is the infraction of a dietary law. The man replied, The woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you've done? The woman answered, The serpent tripped me, so I ate it. And the God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the livestock and wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust as long as you live. I will put animosity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. And he's speaking to the serpent there. That right there is the gospel. <laughs> we have the gospel, Genesis 1 through 3. Is it? We have the first little hint at salvation, don't we? But we also see this thing begin to uh, kind of arise and develop, which we would later in theological pinheaded terms, call substitutionary atonement. What do I mean by that? Because it says here that he clothed them in skins. He took from them their excuses, their attempts to hide their sin, and gave them a cloth. He gave them a covering made out of what? Skin. So can an animal lose all its skin for the sake of becoming clothing and still be alive? No. So Adam and Eve were supposed to die, but did they immediately? No, but did something else? 
Yes. In other words, there was a substitution that happened. And we would call that a sacrifice. The very first sacrifice we see is in Genesis chapter 3. Okay, fine. You want to sin? You deserve to die. Right now you deserve to die. But I'm going to, I'm going to kill something else instead. And I'm going to cover you with the cloths that I make for you. So here it is again. Then the eyes of both of them opened. They made themselves loincloths, right? Te-e-na. With fig leaves. Remember that. Fig leaves. Then here it says, The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of katonet or. It's not or like light, okay? It's a different spelling. Or like, like flesh. He gave them garments of flesh. Katonet or. And he clothed them. So something had to die. It should have been Adam, but it was an animal instead. Here we have the first sacrifice happening in the Bible. And it says he drove the man out and he, at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim, the cherubim, at the, uh, in the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay? There's a misnomer. Um, the, the, we should not call it the Garden of Eden. It should be Eden with a garden in it. Okay? There's three levels of Eden. You've got Eden, the garden, the tree of life. Three levels. Remember that. Three levels. So if we can kind of stop here and pause and try to defend, def, define what sin is, sin is simple. It's disobedience to God. It's disobedience to an, a moral injunction, injunction that he gives us. Disobedience equals sin. Okay? Nothing super fancy about it. Nothing really hard to... 1 John 3.14 says, actually it should be 1 John 3.4, says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness because sin is lawlessness. Okay? One of, the, one of the clearest, if not the only, definition in the entire New Testament of sin. But in the Hebrew Bible, there's actually three levels of sin. Now we, and in, in sometimes in, in church theology, we say, well, sin is sin. Well, it's not true. Sin is not good, but there's actually three different levels, and here they are broken out. And I did a teaching on this a couple years back um, on the three levels of sin and, and the importance of Yom Kippur. But number one is the, the least severe sin. It's called chata. Chata is like when I'm aiming at something, like it's actually used um, in, I think, in the book of Psalms. Like there's someone with the slingshot, and they can, no, it's talking about the Benjamites, how the Benjamites can hit the hair of a man that's standing up with a, with a stone and a sling. And they don't chata. They don't miss. That's an accidental sin. Okay? The next level is avon, which is an intentional missing the mark. You're like, yeah, I know that's wrong, but I'm going to do it. The highest and most severe of the three sins is pesha. Pesha is a premeditated, oh, I want to kill him. I'm going I'm to lie and wait for him. And then I'm going to do, I'm going to, I'm going to, it's an act of open rebellion against God. The three levels of sin. You got it? We'll review it in a second if you don't. So where there is sin, there must be death. That death can be the sinner or that death can be a worthy sacrifice. Just like we saw in Genesis 3. Okay? Here, but here's God's goal. God has a, God created us. He created the garden, created humans. And he wanted to dwell in that. He loves us so much. And he wants to dwell with his creation. His goal is this. And, but he did this really amazing thing, but also like really frustrating thing. He gave Gabe Rutledge free will. 
And that free will, man, oh, I wish he would have just made me a robot. I could have been a lot more obedient. But he wants to create a space that is free of sin and by extension, free of death. Sort of like the Eden, the garden in Eden. Sort of like that. If he can create this Eden space, he can once again dwell with his creation, okay? Do you think God's going to get what he wants? Let's find out. Here it is. The garden in Eden space, the bubble. In comes, through the book of Exodus, this place called the Mishkan. The Mishkan is the place, literally translates as the place of the Shekhan, the place of God's dwelling. It's also called the Mikdash. The Mikdash, it's the place of holiness. It's the holy place. It's also called the Ohel Moed, the tent of meeting. It's all of those. We call it in English the tabernacle, the wilderness tabernacle. It was a portable structure that the Israelites would carry with them through the wilderness for 40 years. And it was a garden, so to speak, a, an Eden, and it had the three levels. You had Eden, which was supposed to be the nation of Israel. You had the garden, and then inside you had the tree of life. When you walked into this structure, you were supposed to be reminded and, and kind of like provoked to, to feel like you're back in that bubble, back in God's presence. All right? This was that, this was that safe Eden space. With that came the five types of offerings that we see instituted that were to be carried out in this place and this place only. In other words, you can't just go out in your backyard behind your tent and carry out these sacrifices. They had to be done by certain people at certain times and in certain instances. And here they are, the burnt, the grain, the peace. Those are all things that you can do out of your own volition. You don't have to do any of those things. And then the guilt and the trespass offering were required. Okay? Now, some of these involve animals. Many of them involve agricultural products like grain, barley, oil, wine. But a couple of them require animals because where there's sin, there has to be what? Death. Yeah, exactly. You got it. We're not going to go into a lot of detail about these, but these five were like kind of uh, flowing through the daily life of Israel, so to speak. So if I, if I committed a sin against Jeremy, and I stole something from him, maybe accidentally. I didn't realize it was his sheep that wandered in my fold, and I stole it, and I slaughtered it, and we ate it, or whatever. Then I would confess that sin to Jeremy and to God, and then I would go in, and I would, I would, I would uh, offer up a sin offering. Now, did that sin offering, did that forgive me of that sin? No. What did? my confession, and my repentance, and my restoration of that back to Jeremy. Fixing that. That is what brought forgiveness. This, the offering was to be an outward manifestation of my desire to make peace between my God and Jeremy. But it didn't forgive me of that sin. It never did. One of my, one of my mentors and one of my... Uh, teachers that I, I look up to, one of the, I guess, of the few teachers I listen to on a regular basis is, is Pastor Grant Luton from Beth Tikkun in Akron, Ohio. And he did this really interesting thing, and I, I was like, wow, this is really thought-provoking. Talked about how an animal dies in the natural state, because when we look at the sacrifice uh, rituals, we think, oh man, there's like blood slinging everywhere, and it's like inhumane, and it's torturous on these animals, and they're like, 
you know, it's, it wasn't anything like that. It was the most humane form of slaughter of an animal. How many of you eaten meat the last week, right? You've eaten, a, you've eaten an animal that was slaughtered probably in a way that wasn't very humane. But in the temple, it was very humane. It was very ethical. Um, and it wasn't all just, just gone to waste. People ate that food. People ate that meat. But how an animal dies in the natural world? Let's talk about this. Let's take a deer, for instance. How is a deer going to die? No, no, there's no humans. There's no humans. You can't run over the deer, Marvin. That deer might get old, right? Yeah. And as it gets old, its joints are going to wear out. It's going to slow down. And there's these things called predators, aren't there? And is that predator going to walk up to it and be like, hey, are you ready to die now and be eaten by me? No. That wolf is going to creep up on that thing, and it might be laying down because it can't really move that well and it has arthritis in its joints. And that wolf is going to grab it by its esophagus and clench its jaw until the life bleeds out of that thing. And then, if it's dead or alive, that wolf is probably going to have buddies with it and it's going to start eating that deer. Okay? I mean, let's, let's take um, a, a deer that's not old. <laughs> it's going to have diseases, right? Let's say it gets diseases somehow. And those diseases or those parasites end up taking its life. And that deer eventually is like, it, it's just like it can't go on any further. And it leaves the safety of the herd and it just lies down somewhere. And eventually scavengers might come along if predators don't. Scavengers might come along. You think they're going to be respectful whether or not that deer is alive or dead? No. Animals in the natural world typically die a very long, torturous death. A very painful one. Nature is cruel. <laughs> I've had these... Um, in my garage, I had a bird build a nest, and it had two eggs in it. And every night, I've been closing the garage door. Every morning and early, I would open the garage door, and I'd see the mother bird fly in and out. And I'm like, oh, man, this is so exciting. I love watching these little, these little eggs. And the boys would come down there, and we'd look at the little eggs. And one day, they hatched. And we were so excited. And all these little, little tiny little birds, and they would open their mouths, and we thought they were so cute. And it brought me a lot of joy just opening and closing my garage door, like caring for these little birds. I know. I'm a weirdo. But... One day I came home and Stacy goes, I got bad news. For those who know us, we have two cats. Yeah, we feed those cats well. But just their natural instincts, one of them said, you know what? I'm going to try some little baby bird today for a snack. I was like, ah, nature is cruel. But the sacrifices that went on in this place were not. Think about this. If you're that same, let's say goat, and you live your life in the safety and under the shepherding of a good shepherd. And someone buys you, and they take you to this place. Think of the, the uniqueness of your life. The fact that you're about to be offered on an altar. You're going to die humanely, first of all. And you're going to be altar, offered on an altar to the Most High God. As a form of some kind of reconciliation between you and that God. I might want to go out that way. I don't know. But all these sacrifices dealt exclusively with the lower levels of sin, like accidental sin. And none of these sacrifices pertain to or address the issue of intentional sin. Uh-oh. If you're like me, you've probably committed intentional sin before. Nor are any of these sacrifices a catalyst to get forgiveness for anything. So what is? What does cover intentional sin? What does cover that? Well, there was a sacrifice that did. And that's why I had you read Leviticus chapter 16. 
Go to Leviticus 16, verse 21. Leviticus 16, 21. That's why I had you read Leviticus 16 and the book of Hebrews. And this is kind of the, the focal point of this chapter. Leviticus 16, verse 21. It says, Aharon is to lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, on Yom Kippur, right, once a year, and confess over it all the Avon, all the Pesha, and all the Chata. Sound familiar? That's the three levels of sin. This is the only sacrifice that would cover those two intentional categories of sin. Very important sacrifice, right? So if you can't do it, uh-oh, that's not good, right? So like if the temple were to be destroyed and you can't do the young people offering, you'd be freaking out a little bit, right? Because you're more than likely going to sin intentionally. But did God institute all of this or is this like man-made stuff? God instituted it, right? Not only did he institute it, but he actually showed Moses while on the mountain that that was already going on in the heavenly realm. That he showed him a pattern, and he's like, I want you to do this physical stuff to represent what is going on in the spiritual. Did God know before creating the world that he would institute this? I, I hope you say yes. That he is outside of space and time. He's omniscient, right? He knows the end from the beginning. He knew that he would have to institute animal sacrifices. Did God know that even after instituting all this, his son would still have to sacrifice his life? Wait, really? Where do you get that from? Romans 13. He was slain before the foundation of the world. Talk about the love of our Heavenly Father. That he knew, wait, when I pull the trigger on creating an Adam and Eve, my perfect son is going to have to die for these goofballs. <laughs> these like stiff-necked human beings. Yeah, I love them. Let's do it. Think about that. He knew all of that from the beginning. Why did he still do it? I don't know. <laughs> His love must be far beyond my comprehension. That's the only thing I can tell you. If I was God, I'd be like, okay, Noah, just you, bud. Welcome to dry ground. Just going to be you. He is way merciful than I am. Yeah, exactly. Without that, we wouldn't know the true love. So perhaps all of these sacrifices, how do we fit this into a category? What if they all pointed towards the ultimate sacrifice of Yeshua that was to come? Like a sacrifice that was an intersection and a fulfillment of all these sacrifices. And when I say the fulfillment, don't hear abolition of them. So we get to the first century and in steps the snake crusher mentioned in Genesis 3. The one that is to crush the head of the serpent. Yeshua. The Messiah. John 1 says that he is the word of God that became flesh and dwelt among men. Sound familiar? To me that sounds like when God came down to the garden. What's going on guys? Where are you? Have you been faithful? And he's filled with zeal for his father's house. Remember when he's 12 and they go to Passover and they leave him there in Jerusalem? Where do they find him? In the temple. And he's like, didn't you realize I'd be up to my father's business in his house, right? And then when he cleanses the temple, it says that his disciples remembered that it says that he would be filled with the zeal for his father's house. But 
He finds a corrupt priesthood. He finds people not being faithful in the garden. You get what I'm saying? You see how it's repeating in Genesis 3. To the point that he calls it a den of robbers. And remember when he does that, what does he do? He goes back out and he sees a fig tree. <laughs> Just like in Genesis 3. And what does he do to the fig tree? Curses it. Man, this is a wicked generation. They're trying, to, they're trying to gain notoriety and a name for themselves and wisdom. Just like in Genesis 3, they're eating from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They're wearing fig leaves. That's not what I wanted. In other words, we need a reset button, guys. Uh-oh. In Matthew 24, he prophesies about the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Does, is he gleeful over that? Yeah, the temple's going to get destroyed. Yay. No. His heart is deeply grieved by the destruction of the temple at the hands of the Romans. It's, it's grieving him. Because that's his father's house. So he dies on Passover as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now let me go over to Isaiah 61. Take you, take you there real quick. Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61. Verse 1. Isaiah 61. 1. I'm going to go ahead and start reading while you guys are catching up for the sake of time here. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to announce good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives, to let out into light those bound in the dark, to proclaim a year of favor of the Lord, and the day of the vengeance of our God, and to comfort all who mourn. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, because that's from Luke chapter 4. Yeshua goes in the synagogue of Nazareth. He reads from that chapter. Now flip over and go to verse 10. Go to verse 10 of Isaiah 61. It says, I am so joyful in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. For he has clothed me in what? Salvation. And what's the Hebrew word for salvation? Yeshua. He has dressed me with a robe of triumph. Like a bridegroom wearing a festive turban. And like a bride adorned with her jewels. It's beautiful, right? Now... Go with me to Titus 2. This is important that we understand what the, the death of Yeshua does for us. Titus chapter 2. Titus 2. Paul's writing a letter to Titus. Titus 2. Verse 11. For God's grace, which brings deliverance, has appeared to all people. It teaches us to renounce godlessness and worldly pleasures and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives now in this age while continuing to expect the blessed uh, fulfillment of our certain hope, which is, appearing, which is the appearing of the Shekhinah, the glory of our great God, and the appearing of our Deliverer, who is that? Yeshua, the Messiah. He gave himself up as like a sacrifice, right? On our behalf. Do you hear the substitutionary stuff going on there? In order to free us from all violation of the law, the Torah, and to purify for himself a people who would be his own, eager to do good. That's the death of Messiah right there. That's what it accomplished. It's huge. And to the point where there's a old, 
legend in rabbinic literature that says this. And you can look this up. This is from the Talmud. It says that um, the sages taught that during the tenure of Shimon Hatzadik, the high priest at that time, the lot for God, when they're doing the lot forecasting for the, the Yom Kippur offering, it always came up in the priest's right hand. But after his death, it only occurred occasionally. But during the 40 years prior to the destruction of the temple, now, wait a second. When was the temple destroyed? 78. You guys did your homework. 70 AD. So what's 70 minus 40? 30s. When was Yeshua killed? The, yeah, early 30s. 30 to 33. So it says, 40 years prior to the destruction of the temple. Listen to this. The lot for God did not arise in the high priest's right hand at all. So too, the strip of crimson that was tied... Uh, crimson wool that was tied to the head of the goat and was sent to Azazel on Yom Kippur, it never turned white. And the westernmost lamp of the menorah in the temple did not burn continually. And the doors of the sanctuary, of the temple, they opened by themselves as a sign that they would soon be opened by enemies. And they said to the sanctuary, 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 why do you frighten yourself with these signs? I know about you that you will ultimately be destroyed. And Zechariah has also prophesied concerning you. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. It's interesting here that we see the beginnings of a shift. And that's even preserved in ancient rabbinic literature. That upon the death, around the time of the death of Yeshua of Nazareth, these weird things, let's call them omens, started happening in the temple. Weird, right? On Yom Kippur, the day that was set aside to atone for all three levels of sin, even intentional sin. That should be troubling, and it was to them. So the, the Romans close in, and the tensions get tenser, don't they? In comes, and that brings us to this book of our Bible, the letter to the Messianic Jews, or what this writer calls Hebrews. Written in 65. When was the temple destroyed? 70. Written around 65. reason why we believe it was written before the destruction of the temple is because it's all talking about the Levitical system and the sacrifices and the priests in present tense. It's happening now. Let me set the stage a little bit here. If you're a Jewish believer in Jerusalem or elsewhere and you believe in Yeshua as Messiah, your ability to go up to the temple is going to be a little bit limited. If they find out that you're a disciple of Yeshua of Nazareth, they're going to make it hard for you. They're going to seize your property. They're going to shut down your business. They're going to shun you. No, you're an apostate. You're a heretic. You cannot worship here. All right? In addition to that, you see that the political climate and the temperature is elevating a little bit. You see that things are getting a little bit tense. Some revolts are starting to kind of grow. 66, 67... Things are getting a little bit dicey. I think war, as Creedence Clearwater Revival would say, there's a bad moon rising, right? And here is Hebrews in a nutshell. I know you are worried about access to the temple. I know you're worried about the Yom Kippur offering possibly going away. 
But don't worry. You have an eternal and heavenly high priest in the place of that system. While you might not be able to go there, while that might be going away soon, it's okay. Because he's able to bring a spiritual sacrifice. He has shed his blood as a, as a, as a sacrifice that trumps all of those. Doesn't, like I said, doesn't abolish, but is greater. And he's seated at the right hand of God because of that. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest that cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet did not sin. Very important. And here the writer of Hebrews says, They, the priest, serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tents, he was instructed by God saying that, See to it that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. That's already going on. It was already going on. It's still going on. It overlapped with the Levitical system. And now the Levitical system is gone. It's still going on. Did anybody get the word in Hebrews 8 that was inserted by translations? The word covenant. The word covenant. Yeah. Good. Some of you did your homework. So here it is again. Hebrews paraphrased. A seismic shift is coming with our ability to approach the Eden bubble. You remember that? The Eden bubble, the Eden space. And God's presence. That might change, right? But we are largely, as followers and believers of Yeshua, unaffected by this. Yeah, we might be saddened by that. But we're largely unaffected by this because of our status with Him. Make sense? And that's why if you, you read Leviticus 16 and then you switched over and read Hebrews the book of Hebrews, you would hear all the Yom Kippur stuff going on, right? Did you guys make that correlation? It's all about Yom Kippur. And this need for an atoning work for intentional sin. But now that you've been set free, Paul says in Romans 6, we're going back to that verse. Now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get, remember the fruit that we chose was not good. The fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin are death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Yeshua, our Lord. Man, that's powerful, right? So in summary, you got sacrifices, I believe, pointing towards Yeshua. There's a, there's a Savior that's going to come, and he's going to be the intersection and the fulfillment and the embodiment of so many of these sacrifices that you do on a regular basis. Yeshua comes, does all that, achieves a great reward, a great redemption. And then for the span of time where the temple was still standing and sacrifices were still happening, I believe that the disciples of Yeshua were going up there and looking at those and viewed those sacrifices as a memorial of that atoning work. You got me? Okay. Isaiah 53 says, it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And when his soul is made like a, a sham, a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And after the anguish of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their avon. You hear that? One of the highest levels of sin. Yeshua bore it for us. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't try to teach you more about the gospel while teaching you about sacrifices. Because I think the sacrifices 
are all about the gospel. And here's how I'm going to do it. Let's answer these questions. Where can we find these Eden spaces today? Where can we see and access his presence today? Can we? Let's, let's go, uh, well, we don't have to actually, but you know this because we've been studying through the book of Acts. What's the most frequent name of our movement? The way. What did the cherubim in, in Eden guard? The way. It's no accident that that became the name of our movement. What did Yeshua call himself in John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Didn't stop there, did he? What else did he say? No one comes to the Father except through me. Wow, that's a big exclusive claim, isn't it? Man, so if I don't have Yeshua, I don't get access. Correct. You're absolutely correct. Matthew 18, 18. Turn with me right there uh, real quick, and we'll, we'll cover that. Matthew 18, 18. Where can we find these Eden spaces? Matthew 18, 18. He says, yes, I tell you that whatever people prohibit on earth will be prohibited, prohibited in heaven. You people, I should say. And that if two of you, two or three, your translation might say, uh, of you here on earth agree about something, people ask, it will be for them, for my Father, for my Father in heaven. Here's the key right here, verse 20. For wherever two or three are gathered or assembled in my name, I am there. You see what's happening there? How many people are in this room? Are we gathered in his name? Is he here? According to that. Is this an Eden space? According to that. Look at 1 Peter 2. Look at 1 Peter 2. Now, I'm not saying this is the temple. <laughs> I'm not saying this is a temple. But in a sense, I am. 1 Peter 2. Verse 1, therefore rid yourselves of all malice, of all deceit, hypocrisy, and envy, and all the ways uh, there are of speaking against people, and be like newborn babies thirsty for the pure, pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow up into deliverance, for you have tasted that the Lord is good. And as you come to him, the living stone, Yeshua, he was rejected by people, but chosen by God and precious to him. You yourselves are like living stones. You're being built into a spiritual house to be priests set apart for God to offer sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices, acceptable through Yeshua, the Messiah. So, do you see yourself as a living stone of the temple? Where when you gather with other stones, you create a need in space, wherein the presence of God can dwell, and people can see that. Like I talked about at Jackson Blue Spring, we're like living stones coming together and people can see the presence of God in our midst. Right? Let's go one more. 1 Corinthians 3.16. 1 Corinthians 3.16. <laughs> and guys, if you, if you remember 1 Peter 2, rid yourselves of all mallet deceit. Just in my short tenure of doing what I do, the enemy likes to cripple our ability to exemplify the presence of God and the holiness of God through our speech about one another and towards one another, even amongst ourselves. 
You got me? It's so easy for him to do. Watch your speech about each other. You know, watch your speech about our leaders. Pray for our leaders. Please don't slander our leaders. Please don't slander one another. Be cautious of that. You might be diminishing the presence of God being made manifest in our midst by doing so. You don't want to be guilty of doing that. Okay? 1 Corinthians 3.16 Don't you know that you people are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? So if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you yourselves are that temple. So, where can we find these Eden spaces? Where can we find this access? The answer is not this building. <laughs> it's us. It's when the assembly, when the body of Messiah unites together. And Yeshua says that they will know, you are my disciples, by your love. And that will sanctify God's name. No pressure, right? No pressure at all. <laughs> but we've got to be ever vigilant of that. We've got to be the, the best custodians of that space that we can be. That's a lot of work, trust me. Please, please do your best. Allow the Holy Spirit to convict you and to mold you and to conform you into having the mind of Yeshua. So important in this day and age. And with that, let me close in prayer and we'll go to questions and answers. Abba Father, I thank you that you desire to dwell with us. I thank you that you sent your son Yeshua to dwell with us and to offer himself as atoning work for our sins, both yesterday and today and forever, the, the rest of our lives. May we not trample on this grace. And may we, through our knowledge of your mercy and love, come to a saving knowledge of Yeshua the Messiah. And if there is no one in this room or within the sound of my voice that has a personal relationship with him, may they be convicted May they be ashamed, but then may they experience your mercy and love. And I pray all this in the mighty and matchless name of Yeshua. Amen. Well, guys, what questions or comments do you have? Xavier. Okay, Hebrews 9, 13 to 14. your question correctly you're saying I don't understand your question <laughs> you're saying yeah I would agree with that um, yeah so what was your question then like follow just Yeah, I would agree with that. That's, I mean, what was the verse? Hebrews 9, 11 through 13, you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, let's talk about it. Um, 
here soon. I mean, I I don't take any issue with that whatsoever. Um, and I think we may we may look into um, what is what is to sanctify the flesh versus what is to completely um, what is the word I'm looking for? A sponge? Is that the word I'm looking for? Or not? Yeah. Romans seven what? Romans seven fourteen to eight. To chapter eight verse two. Romans seven. Okay. While I turn there, does anybody else have another question? Yeah. Yeah. Hebrews eight thirteen. That's sometimes a little. Okay. Let's look at it here in a second. So Romans Romans seven fourteen. Mm. And the, they're at war. Yeah. The flesh. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah. Xavier, meet Jim. Jim, meet Xavier. <laughs> yeah, that's good. This is why I love doing Q and A because it's a good opportunity for us to. Uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, that'd be good to talk about, sit about, sound, study out. Yeah, Suzanne. Oh no, I got it. I'm sorry, I skipped Marvin's question. Yeah, Hebrews eight thirteen. Kind of okay, confusing. Marvin has a question about Hebrews eight thirteen, yeah. and then we'll take about three more questions. Hebrews eight thirteen. By using the term new, he has made the first covenant old, and something being made old, something in the process of aging, is on its way vanishing altogether. Yeah, that's kind of confusing, you know, because mm -hmm. a lot of these people. Protestants say that the old law is out. Yeah. And the new law is in. Now, and, and that is true to a certain extent. Yeah, I mean, that is true. There is a new covenant. Mm -hmm. And that is true that there is a covenant that is not as new. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but the key here, and it's repeated in Hebrews chapter 10, um, he's going to quote, uh, yeah. go to Hebrews 10 verse 16. He's going to quote Jeremiah chapter 31. This is the covenant which I make with them after those days. I will put my law in their hearts and I will write it on their minds. So uh, in, in their sins and in their wickedness, I will remember no more. Yeah. So is the, ter the, the covenant, the terms of the covenant are not changing because yeah. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Mm -hmm. But the delivery of this covenant and the terms of the covenant is changing. Mm -hmm. And he's doing it by writing it on our law, by our, on our hearts. Okay. And how does he write the terms and, and, and the conditions of this covenant on our hearts? Yeah. so to speak. He's not really like taking a Sharpie and writing on our hearts. He's circumcising our hearts with, with the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and compelling us to want to be obedient yeah. by convicting us, by comforting us, yeah. by teaching us. And so that's where that comes into play. Yeah, but it gets misinterpreted a lot. Yeah, absolutely. If you don't read the next chapter, it could be very, yeah. How's it going? If God knew what we were going to do, why create us at all? That's a very good question. I have no idea. <laughs> that is an excellent question. And I know that I know that God loves us deeply. And if I were God and I could see through the quarters of time and see things like this shooting that happened this past week or the Holocaust, I would say, you know what? No, I'm going to pass. But um, I'm going to I'm going to try to answer it and I'll let Jim pipe in as well. But God loves you and I, and He loves us so much that He's willing to put up with our shenanigans and our nonsense and our injustices that we deal to one another. 
And I think when we finally get to the point where we realize that God made you in his image and he made me in his image, we're both made in God's image, therefore I should love you. When we finally, as, hum as humanity, get to that point, um, we're going to continue to do those stupid things. But, Jim. Okay, so your homework is to get it with Jim. Suzanne. Yeah, anybody ever here caught a fish and cleaned a fish and then ate the fish? Some of you, anybody ever butchered a chicken, slaughtered a chicken or a goat? Some of you have, okay. When you take a bite of that fish or that goat or that chicken having looked that thing in the eyes, is it different? Because <laughs> you took its life, right? When you go to the altar, having committed that sin that is necessitating that sacrifice, it's a little bit different, isn't it? You're looking that animal in the eyes and you're basically having to say, you're dying because of me. Right? It's different. What does that do to your desire to want to continue to sin? Right? And I don't know what it is. Like when I eat a, a, a fish that I cooked and cleaned myself and caught, yeah, it tastes good and everything, but I have a, a level of respect for that that I didn't if I went to McDonald's and got a Chick-fil-A sandwich, right? And I get full a lot faster for some reason. I'm thinking, man, this animal, like I, I watched all this and it was kind of gross and there was guts and I was like, ah, you know, it tastes good, but I can't really enjoy it. Maybe if I did it more often, I would fully enjoy it. But um, let's take a few more questions. I saw Brenda's hand. She's been very patient. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah, Karen. Um, one of my friends was point that Georgia made. I wish she was here to elaborate on this, but she was reading a book and she made a really good point about how we speak. And one of them was okay, so there's people two or more gathered there, I will be. So 
You can establish a matter. So she was saying, like, okay, so if Satan is the accuser, so he goes before the Lord all the time in, with accusations. So if he's standing there and there's no witness, <coughs> mm-hmm. then, you know, but they're saying, okay, yeah. so if you speak against the brother, he's down with Satan mm, as an as accuser. A witness. So yeah. where two or more gathered. In that case, then you're condemning, you're yeah. Part of the accusation that supports his. So you're standing with him. It's terrifying, isn't it? Accusations. Yeah. It's pretty heavy when you think about it. That you're really is. With Satan, with that accusation. Yeah. So, but conversely, that's the right word. Yeah. When you stand with the brother and you speak the word, mm-hmm. encouragement or life, or yeah. Then you're witness to that as well. Absolutely. Standing for the Lord with. That. Yeah, life and so, death are in the power of the tongue. So James says, "Yeah." Yeah, I always say when you when you're in you're in someone's presence and they're slandering another person, compliment that person, and throw them for a loop and just watch what they do. It's really funny. Yeah. So, but no, that's very good insight. Thank you for yeah, Brian. What's the question? Well, the question is, where someone would say, hey, we're under the order of Melchizedek, yeah. because he is our high priest, yeah. so the whole Levitical system along with that is... Yeah. Well, I would say, did the Levitical system exist while the Melchizedek priesthood ever existed? Did they ever overlap each other? The answer is that, yeah, they did. And they likely will again. Um, but the Melchizedek and priesthood is is more of a euphemism talking about priesthood that is an eternal one, like the writer of Hebrews is saying, that is existing in the heavenly realm. And there are representatives, like, you know, Melchizedek would be one, but that predated and coexisted with the Levitical priesthood. Levitical priesthood went away. Melchizedek continues. Levitical will come back. They will probably likely overlap. At least that's what the prophets say. 
So the last chapters of Ezekiel are very explicitly talking about, the last eight chapters of Ezekiel talk about um, the, the system returning. So that's what I guess I would say. Yeah. Um, let's take one more question, and then we got a break. And I'll, I'll be sitting right here if you have any more questions or comments. But hope you guys learned something today. Before I take Michael's question, uh, we're going to jump back into Acts 24 next week, a week from today. So do your homework. Read Acts 24. All right? Michael, what's your question? Yeah, is that the verse that you sent to me, Xavier, this week? I can't remember. Okay. Well, good for digging into it and exploring it. Thank you. Thank you for doing your homework. Sorry you got the bonus wrong. <laughs> All right, we're going to say the blessing over the, the fruit of the vine. And